Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc. Or you can join us for one of our Sunday gatherings each Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m. And and so what I want to do is we start a brand new series called Reckless Love. I just want to try to understand to the best of our ability, maybe contextualize what it is when we say this overwhelming, never-ending reckless love of God. And so, so we'll start light today. I, I just want to question, we'll poll the audience so you can raise your hand. Is anybody in the room willing to admit that you have received a traffic ticket of some kind in your life? Okay, that's a decent majority of us. Uh, and if you, if you feel confident enough to say that maybe you've received two traffic tickets in your life, the number did go down a little bit. Is there anybody in the room willing to admit that you've received five plus traffic tickets in your life. There's a handful of us in the room, my hand included. My hand is in the air. Uh, here's the deal. I love the boys in blue. I appreciate everything that they do for us. I just wish they didn't do their job quite so well when it came to getting me when I was wrong. And so, uh, man, I've gotten, I've gotten every kind of ticket you can imagine. I've obviously gotten the speeding ticket. I've gotten the failure to stop at a stop sign ticket. I've gotten the failure to stop at a stop light ticket. Uh, I've gotten the expired insurance card ticket. I've gotten the no seatbelt ticket. But I have not gotten the reckless driving ticket. Can I get an amen in the room? I have not gotten a reckless driving ticket on my record, but here's the deal. Like when I think about reckless, that's kind of where I default to. I go, I go reckless, negative context, negative connotation, reckless driving, reckless endangerment, right? Like we, we think about it in a negative context. We think about things like carelessness and impulsivity. We think about things like hasty and thoughtless actions. And so it begs the question to be asked this morning, Why do we then sing a song in this room that paints a negative aspect of God's love? I mean, you just sang the song. I hope you realized that it was more than words. Like you just went, oh, the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Oh, the the never-ending, overwhelming, reckless love of God. And you said those words. I had to sing something today. You know, like, that's just, that's how that works. So, so you said those words, but it begs the question, why did we use that language? Why did we use that terminology? And I'll just be really honest, as, as the gatekeeper of what we sing and don't sing in corporate worship here, I'll be really honest to say that that song was a little bit underwhelming to me to begin with. Like, my initial reaction to that song was like, why would they use the word reckless? Like, why would you use a negative to describe God's love? And, and then I felt God kind of tap on my heart, and he said, I, I hear what you're saying. It's probably the same thing that the Pharisees and the men of the law said, the people who despised Jesus. They were probably thinking the same thing as I contextualized my love to the world. They were probably going, why do you love like that? Or the part in the bridge, you sang the part in the bridge, and I had to really come to terms with the line that says, there's no wall you won't kick down. And I'm like, is this a Chuck Norris song? Like, what, what are we, are we going to roundhouse kick a wall today? Is that what we're going to do? But then I remembered that I have a hard and heavy and calloused heart, that it takes a very intentional love and a very, a very focused love to penetrate. And so I said, okay, God. Then, then we're going to begin to dive into it. We're going to look at it. And so here's, here's what I do. As we, today, as we tie the concept of, of worship and the word together, because I don't think that they're two separate entities trying to occupy the same space in the gathering today. 
But I, but I think worship and the word, worship and the message, they are a cohesive piece. They are a message and a method trying to communicate a characteristic of who God is. And, and so what I would ask you to do today is before you pass judgment, before you uh, talk about your preferences, before you draw any conclusions, I would ask that you hold off until we properly examine the scripture text and the context of the song. And so we're going to be in Luke 15 today. If you've got God's word, if you've got uh, a copy of a Bible app, if you've got something that you want to open up, if you don't have that with you, that's not a problem. We've got scriptures on the screen to help you follow along. But that's where we're going to land here in just a few minutes. But as a musician, as a writer, as somebody who has written lyrics to a song, I understand that the way to really understand and get to the heartbeat of the song is to get into the mind of the writer, right? Because if you can find the thoughts of the writer, you can begin to understand the meaning of his words. And so here is something that I ran across. It's the words of the guy who wrote the song. His name is Corey Asbury. A Facebook post that he wrote defending his use of the word reckless in describing God's love. He said this, when I use the phrase the reckless love of God, I'm not saying that God himself is reckless. I am, however, saying that the way he loves is in many regards quite so. What I mean is this, he is utterly unconcerned with the consequences of his actions with regards to his own safety, comfort, and well-being. His love isn't crafty, it's not slick, it's not cunning or shrewd. In fact, all things considered, it's quite childlike. And I might even suggest sometimes downright ridiculous. His love bankrupt heaven for you. His love doesn't consider himself first. His love isn't selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he'll gain or he'll lose by putting himself out there. He simply gives himself away on the off chance, on the maybe, that one of us might look back at him and offer ourselves in return. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate as Luke 15 begins to unfold. I often tell our students that Jesus is the comprehensible representation of an incomprehensible God. Meaning the way that he presented himself and the way that he talked and the way that he dialogued with people gave people a glimpse of God that they couldn't understand in terms that they could relate to. And so Jesus stepped onto the scene and, and, and Luke 15 kind of opens up and it's kind of creating the scenario for us. It's kind of letting us know who are the players in the story that we're about to read. And so Luke 15:1 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I find it incredibly interesting that it's the bad people who are gathered eager to hear what Jesus has to say. And it's the quote unquote good people who are standing back judging the bad people who are trying to get closer to God. Sadly, sounds a lot like a bunch of churches in America today. And so I, so I look at that and I wonder, because I have to remember that at some level, we have to go back to root one. We have to go back to the beginning that we were all broken, that we were all lost, that we were all hopeless. And it took Jesus coming and exchanging the perfection of heaven for the cruelty of a cross and offering us the greatest display of love ever shown than any of us even have hope today to stand in this room. We, we have to get back to that place, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll get to that in a minute. So, so here's the deal. Jesus is fully aware of what's happening in the background. He understands the peanut gallery is making their comments. And so he goes, okay, let me explain it to you. Let me give you something to help contextualize God's love for you. So verse four picks up and it says this. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
and this group of people, they could very easily relate to the characters, uh, characters of the story, the sheep, the shepherd, like that's very much everyday stuff that they're going to see. They understand the context, but what they couldn't understand, the idea that he was communicating that was just ludicrous to them was the idea that the head shepherd would leave 99 sheep and pursue the one that was lost. And no shepherd with half a brain is leaving the majority to seek out the minority. And yet that's exactly what God's love did for us. So here's the deal. He loves, he loves the one so much that every single time he's leaving the 99 to go find the one. Every single time. Because from the beginning to the end, every single time, the one has always and forever will be supremely important. And scripture goes on to say this, that not only does he go and pursue the one and then he gives up, but it says he pursues the one until he finds the one. And so you pick up verse 5, it says this, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Notice the word joyfully, not begrudgingly, not angrily, but joyfully he picks up the lost one and he brings it home. And for me, like for me, I'm just going to be really honest, that's enough right there. And I don't know if you put two and two together, but we're the lost sheep. I hope you understand that. And so we are the one that chose wrong. We are the one that wandered away. So just to be rescued would be enough. Just to be found would be enough. Just to be considered safe would be enough. But in the beautiful picture of God's reckless, relentless, pursuing love for us, he doesn't just stop with finding us. He goes deeper than that. You pick up verse 6. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Church, this is what I know. His love is not cautious. His love is not careful. His love holds nothing back. His love offered up his only son to endure a gruesome death on a cross for us. And as somebody who has a son, I have to look at you and be really honest and say, I don't think could do that for you. As much as I love the exchange family, as much as I love what God's doing here, as much as I love you and the fact that you're in this room right now, I could not say that I love you more than I love my two-year-old son and that I would give him in your place. But that's exactly what God did. So here's the deal. There's no plan B with God's love. There, there is no plan B. Like he gives his love away so freely, oftentimes so ridiculously, so often with the odds ever stacked against him, there is no guarantee of return on the investment that he makes. And yet he chooses to give it away. You see that displayed in Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were far from him, while we were enemies of the cross, Christ died for us. And just going to be really, really real for a minute. But some of us in the room, like we're standing here today, still sinners. Now, let me clarify what I'm saying, because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying imperfect people who are trying to look more like Jesus. I'm saying some of us in this room are still willingly choosing sin over God. Like you chose things last night or last week that in no way showed an expression of love back towards him. Or you chose things that in no way showed any appreciation for the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Some of us are standing in the room still sinners. In essence, what we've done is we've refused to love him back the way that he loved us. 
And in any relationship scenario that I'm familiar with, when, when the, the feelings of the giver are not reciprocated by the receiver, somebody's left with a broken heart, right? Oftentimes a very irreparable broken heart. And yet God gives himself away again and again and again and again and again and again. I think for me, like that is the clearest picture of the recklessness of his love that he is willing to extend himself out and go, here's my love over and over and over again, knowing full well that we are oftentimes going to reject it over and over and over again, leaving him hurting over and over and over again. I mean, let's be honest. Would you love that way? If we flipped the script and you were in God's place and he was in yours and you just kept, he just kept rejecting you over and over and over again, could you continue to love? Because here's the deal. It puts into perspective a conversation that Jesus has in Matthew 18 with his disciple Peter. Peter approaches Jesus and he, he approaches him with a question. He said, I got something I need to ask you. And I think Peter had thought about it before he asked the question because I think he was like, All right, I need to make sure I'm really careful here. I don't want to undershoot what I'm fixing to say, so I'm actually going to overshoot, try to sound a little more super spiritual than I probably actually have to be, and Jesus is going to land somewhere in the middle, and we're going to figure out the answer to my question. Here's the question. He said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Seven times? Seven times, Jesus. That's a lot of times. Like one time is hard, and the reality is some of us in the room, we're struggling with one time. A brother or sister has wronged us one time, and we're still holding a grudge against the one time. We hadn't even approached seven times yet. And then Jesus steps in, and he completely blows up any rational thought whatsoever. He said, well, let me tell you this. I tell you not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. What? You know, like, I, I, I mean, I know it's metaphor, uh, metaphorical. Like, I understand. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it, it means forgive over and over and over again, right? Like, that's what it means. But even if you took it literally, Jesus is basically saying that at a minimum, you should forgive 490 times. What? You're like, that's crazy. Who does that? Jesus, nobody's doing that. And then he goes, but, but I'm, I'm doing it with you. I, I'm at 490 times and counting with, with you. Because here's the truth, church, like if I, I was vulnerable enough, if I was vulnerable enough to just lay out all my offenses and all my sins on this platform for you to observe, I'll be really honest and say that I would be really, really embarrassed. I would be embarrassed by the things that I've done and make no mistake that every time we choose us over him, we hurt the heart of God. Because every time that we choose us over him, we choose our selfishness over his desire for our life. And if I had to lay that out in front of you, I don't know what I would do. Because each one represents a time that I hurt the heart of God. And let's just be really honest. To get your heart broken one time, that's a lot. That hurts. It takes time to heal, right? What about seven times? A lot harder. What about 70 times seven times? And yet every time God opens himself back up, And he allows us to come in. He he saw us at our worst. He saw us when we hated him. And he said, here's the deal. I know all logic says they're probably going to reject me. But even if they reject me, even if it kills me, I'm going to put my heart on the line. 
I'm going to lay it on the line. Here's the deal. The metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd is not just in the book of Luke, but it also happens in the book of Matthew. And it introduces a different perspective that I think is valuable for us today. In the early parts of the chapter, Jesus is kind of, he settled a debate among the disciples. Like they've tried to like measure themselves up against each other. And they're going, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Like they're looking at the number of salvations they've been a part of, the number of healings and miracles they participated in, uh, how well they speak, how, you know, what they look, they're just measuring themselves against one another. And so they approach Jesus and they go, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And, and Jesus says, hey, little boy, come here, just, just come here for a second. He said, go stand with those guys for a minute. He says, fellas, listen, here, here's what I want to tell you. Unless your heart becomes like the heart of this child, unless your intent and your motive becomes like the motive and the intent of this child, guess what? You're not even getting in the gate. You're not getting in to the kingdom. And then he goes on to say this, verse 10 in Matthew 18, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Speaking about the heart of the child. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep? And one of them wanders away. Will he not leave the 99 on the hill and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And then he says this, in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Let me get personal for just a second this morning. When I think about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, I think about a love that saw me. I think about a love that saw where I was and who I was. And he saw a kid with regret so deep he didn't know where the bottom was. And he saw a kid who willingly chose to compromise his innocence and he had guilt so heavy that he couldn't carry it on his own. But he still loved me. And then somehow he saw that kid and he said, you know what, kid? I want to use you to do kingdom work. I want to use you to impact the world for who I am. Because he's just that kind. He's just that good. I didn't earn it. I don't even fully understand it. I, I definitely don't deserve it, but he's, he's just that good. And for me, that is the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. As I was typing out the end of this message I'm working yesterday afternoon, and I'm asking God, I'm going, God, help me land the plane, because I know you know this, but sometimes pastors, we're really good at running our mouth, but we don't actually get to the point. Like, we don't land the plane, and this is where you're about to love me, because I'm almost done. I'm fixing to land the plane, and we're going to walk out of here. But I'm asking God, I'm going, what do you want me to say? I can keep writing, like I can, I can fill a time slot, or I can say exactly what you want me to say. I can get to the point, and then we can be a people who take action from that point. And I said, God, how do you want me to quantify your love to this room full of people? How can I make it something tangible and understandable for them? And he didn't tell me, but he showed me. As I'm writing, my little girl, Piper, she's about to be four in December, and she walks up. I'm sitting in the recliner in the living room, and I'm typing on my computer, and she walks up, and she stands beside my chair. And I, I, I kind of acknowledge her, but I don't really acknowledge her. I'm still kind of plugging away at what I'm trying to do. And so then she climbs over the arm of the chair, and obviously I begin to notice her then because she's starting to invade my space. And then I say, okay, what are you doing? And then she climbs into my lap, and I go, what are you doing? And then unprovoked, without any hope of reciprocation, any expectation of me saying it back, she just looks at me in my eyes and she says, Daddy, I love you. 
And I went, that's awesome. And then she said it again. And then she said it again. And then she said it a fourth time. And then I felt God tap me on the shoulder. And he said, that's my reckless love for you. It's like the love of an innocent child. They're not holding your wrongdoings against you because the reality was I'd basically ignored my daughter the better half of the afternoon trying to figure out what it was I needed to say to you, but she didn't care. She didn't hold my wrongdoings against me. She didn't hold my missteps against me. She wasn't trying to measure me up to my failures, but she just wanted to be close to me. And she climbed in my lap and she said, Daddy, I love you, and I, and I felt God tap me on the shoulder. He said, that's my love for you. It's not a self-seeking love. It's not a manipulative love. It's not a love that's, it's, it's really this. It's a love on the inside that's longing to show itself on the outside. It's a love that's going to chase you to the deepest, darkest places that you'll run, and it's going to light up the shadows that you try to hide in with the beautiful picture of the light of who Jesus is. It's a love that's going to climb every mountain of success with you and it's going to descend to every valley of failure and defeat with you because it wants to show you its consistency. It's a love that's going to kick down some walls. Walls of hurt and guilt and resentment and hard-heartedness and all the things that you've allowed yourself to build up that make you not feel anymore. He's going to begin to penetrate those walls so that you can feel again. That's his love. His love for you is the love that I felt. It's a love that finds us at our lowest and loves us at our weakest and wants what's best for us. When we say a overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, here's the deal, and I love the line of the song that says it, but he will silence the lie that says you're not enough and replace it with the truth that he's more than enough. And somebody in the room needs to hear that today. So wherever you are, wherever you're going, the reckless love of God is chasing you today. It's after you today. It's for you today. It wants you today. And it's hoping just on the off chance that maybe, maybe you'll turn around and you'll love him back. Now, here's the deal. Even if you don't choose to do that today, guess what he's doing tomorrow? I love you. And the next day, I love you. Just hoping. Just hoping that you respond. See, maybe you're in the room today and you've got to answer the question, do I choose today to embrace the love of God or do I choose today to continue to walk away from it? The reality is that's every single one of us in the room. We either have to choose to embrace it daily or we have to choose to try to do life our own way. And so maybe you're in the room and you have had the most difficult time ever of trying to quantify, contextualize, tangibly understand the love of God and you're seeing, maybe for the very first time, you're seeing a relentless, pursuing love that's after you just hoping, just saying maybe they'll turn around this time. If that's you, maybe today is an opportunity for you to put one step in front of the other and begin to take steps towards who Jesus is in your life. Or, or maybe you're like me. Maybe you're the person in the room. You, you, did, you did what I did. You, you, you thought about the song and you went, why would you, why would you say reckless love of God? Like, why, why would you use that word? Why would you use a negative? Why, why would you? Maybe you're the good person standing in the back of the room judging the bad people who are trying to get closer to Jesus. 
Or, or maybe you're the person who's struggling to forgive one time when Jesus said forgive 490 times. Or, or maybe you're the person in the room who has not yet fully contextualized what it means to truly follow Jesus. Maybe you're the disciple and you're trying to measure yourself up by what you've done and what you plan to do. And Jesus is saying, no, the thing that's attractive to me is a childlike spirit. A heart of simplicity that loves the way that I love. But wherever you are, whoever you are, here's, here's what I know needs to happen today. Just like my little girl did yesterday, some of us need to get up in the lap of our father and just tell him that you love him. Some of us need to just look at him and go, God, thank you for being patient with me while I've been trying to figure out this follow Jesus thing. Thank you, thank you for not giving up on me when I was so far away. And I know I was hurting you because I was willingly choosing to hurt you, but you never turned your back on me. Because this is what I know. Wherever you are in the journey, the reckless, relentless, pursuing love of God is after you. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go. Be the church and give life.